Welcome everyone tuning in to the May edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast, which is a joint project by the Southwest Climate Change Network and the Climate Assessment for the Southwest, or CLEMIS, both here at the University of Arizona. Today's Thursday, May 23rd, and we'll discuss uh, today current drought and a review of the decade of drought, um, and hopefully a little bit of the monsoon. So I'm Zach Guido, and I'm joined by longtime CLEMIS contributor, uh, Mike Crimmins, Dr. Mike Crimmins. Uh, so Mike, uh, I, I actually think we should rename this podcast from the Southwest Climate Change Podcast to the Drought Podcast. Yeah, the for sure. Because drought is all we talk about. It pretty much is, yes. And yeah. so I was, I was uh, looking at the data uh, yesterday because I wanted to see where, where we sort of stand and, and what's been protracted 10 years, 11 years or so, depending on where you are, of, of pretty dry conditions. And uh, so two years ago, when the proverbial crap hit the fan... And New Mexico was in this dire situation. There was exceptional drought, um, which is the, for the U.S. drought monitor, it's, the, it's their most extreme drought category. That covered uh, about 40% of the state. Well, it's worse. It's worse now in yeah, New Mexico. Yeah, hard to believe that that came back. You know, you thought we bottomed out, and we thought we were kind of marching up. But this winter, which was not another La Nina winter, really didn't do much for us across the Southwest. Yeah, and uh, Arizona fared... Uh, a little bit better, but it's still, for the most part, mired, if I can mix metaphors, mired in, 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 in drought, with the exception of some places around um, the Mogollon Rim area. Um, now, if you look at it sort of the, the long-term, or the last decade's perspective, there's been a couple pretty severe periods, most notably in the, in the early 2000s, 2002, which sort of kicked off what, what I'm calling the decade of drought. And, uh, and the, the other really extreme period has been the, the last two years since that first La Nina hit. Um, so what should be the question here? <laughs> How do we summarize? I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I think if you, if you want to, we here at Climate Assessment Southwest lump Arizona and New Mexico together as sort of our sort of region of interest. And, you know, I think as Southwesterners, we we consider Arizona and New Mexico sort of co-partners in, in the idea of being Southwesterners, right? I mean, other people try to join in. Southern California, we don't want them. Utah, Colorado, you're in the interior west. But Arizona and New Mexico sort of hang together. But our climate does not. Um, and you can, you can take these two drought periods and really compare them. The 2002 drought um, was really Arizona's um, worst drought in the last 15 years. It was really where our we certainly are still in drought, but we, we bottomed out um, in a lot of perspectives um, and a lot of elements, the different ways you want to measure drought in that period. What do you mean by bottomed out? It became, it became... The intensity and the duration of it and its impacts on Arizona, I think, were much worse in 2002. And if you look at the sort of the geography of that drought in 2002, it really had some over the Four Corners region of the Southwest, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll let Utah and Colorado in on this, is that um, that, that is where that um, extended period, we had um, some record-breaking lengths of dry days, sort of cumulative dry days emerge in that period. Um, temperatures were way above average. Um, and, you know, sort of coming off of some um, a La Nina winter or, or two La Nina winters at that point in time. And, you know, New Mexico had drought conditions during that period, but it wasn't quite as bad as what we were experiencing, right? So as you march forward, it's noisy over the last 10 years. Arizona and New Mexico sort of trading back and forth on whether we have a dry year or not. And then the La Nina of um, winter of, of 2011 
takes off. Arizona and New Mexico go both both go dry, but New Mexico um, just pulls ahead as far as the extent, duration, intensity of drought conditions. And since then, you know, we um, in the summertime and in the wintertime just get a little bit more precipitation than New Mexico. So um, in the last two to three years, um, New Mexico just can't catch a break. And we've caught enough of a break often enough to, to limp us along, whereas I really think New Mexico is an unprecedented territory. You can even look at their long-term records. They're really um, reaching record levels now. So I can put some of, these, some of that into some numerical pers- perspective. So looking at uh, New Mexico uh, and using the U.S. Drought Monitor, uh, which admittedly is sort of a, an expert-driven or qualitative assessment of drought conditions, um, but you know, some sort of extreme drought or yeah, extreme drought, which is which the U.S. Drought Monitor classifies as a, a drought that happens on average once every 20 years, you know, really began to take hold, or the first indication of it um, um, occurred in March of 2011. Before that, I mean, there was other ex- extreme droughts, but it had uh, been a, a period of about uh, four years since there had been ex- extreme drought. But since March 2011, New Mexico has had a large large fraction of its area with with extreme drought or even worse exceptional drought like I, like I mentioned exceptional which is defined as once in every every 50 years drought right is now uh, close to 45 percent yeah of almost the state. almost half the state is at the worst drought category and I, and I believe it's actually has the most um, it, it's the worst hit um, state in the union right now as far as the extent and depth and duration of drought conditions at this point. So I, the the other point, though, when we're thinking about the the, the decade of drought, um, is that whereas two thousand and two made a bit might have been a little bit worse for Arizona than than the current uh, last two years, the impacts that are associated with a continuation of drought build up over time. They do, yeah. And so the intensity um, may be a little bit less now, but because we've already experienced ten years of, of relatively dry conditions, the impacts are worse than than, than they were in two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that and that goes the same for New Mexico. I was looking at the the reservoir data um, um, after the or around two thousand and two in in New Mexico, Elephant Butte uh, Reservoir, which is New Mexico's largest reservoir, had something like eight hundred thousand uh, acre acre feet of water. Um, well, now it's down to, uh, I believe, 250,000 um, acre feet. So, you know, the accumulation of dry conditions does, does take its toll. So I think the impacts are, are worse now than they were uh, previously, even if drought conditions haven't been as extreme in some areas. Right. You know, I think that, that again, we, we talked a little bit earlier about this idea of the center of action of where these droughts are occurring. That 2002 drought had more of a, it was more over the western U.S. over Four Corners, and now this particular drought um, is really more of a Great Plains, Texas, New Mexico drought. So, you know, between Arizona, we're sort of at a breaking point. And, you know, we are still reeling from drought impacts that, that um, emerged from the 2002 drought. We're, you know, we have not recovered from that drought. We're still at the longer timescales, you know, dealing with water resources impacts across the state, um, you know, vegetation impacts in um, forest health. What do you so what, what what would be an example for example? Oh, I think that you know there's the interaction between um, drought and temperature and bark beetle kills. You right. know, so we still have sort of standing dead forests across much of the state that still um, that you know came out of the 2002 drought that are still ready to burn and haven't burned. And so that you know that's a long lagging 
um, drought impact, that's over 10 years, 10 years ago, right? And so then, again, not recovering because we really haven't had a wet period of, you know, extended one, two, three seasons of above average precipitations or stacking up on each other to, you know, to really bring you out. And, and some of these drought impacts, like say, for example, standing dead trees, you can't, you can't recover from, like right? they don't come back to life. So what ends up happening is that they either need to be cleared out through thinning or they need, they burn or they fall over or something like that. So, and I'm trying to put this in some, some sort of longer term historical perspective. I mean, you often hear that the fifties uh, was another time of pre protracted and, and intense drought, but at least in my recollection, I don't remember seeing a drought lasting 10 years in the 50s. I mean, it seems to me like this, the last 10 years now may be the most severe that we've experienced since, you know, we began keeping keeping records about 100 so odd years ago. Well, I think if you look at 100 years of data, um, <clears throat> one of the things when you look at decade-long decade droughts, decadal droughts, you know, um, they're not clean in the sense that, you know, annual total precipitations are exactly below average um, every year in that, you know, you'll, you have these little um, breaks in the middle of them. You right. get, a, you get a, a wet year. Um, a wet year in our most recent drought was 2004, 2005 in Arizona in particular. So it breaks up our current drought period. It was a, it was a good pulse of pretty exceptional winter precipitation and it stands out in the record, but the timing of it and the, and the extent of it and the duration of it wasn't long enough really to, to erase those drought conditions. And the fifties had the same kind of wet summer here, wet winter there to sort of break up the drought period. So, you know, I think if you look at the record and you squint your eyes a bit or you smooth it out over a long period of time, they're, they're, they're similar. So we have decade-long droughts. And then if you go to the tree rings, you know, the right. contemporary droughts of the last 100 years, they really don't match the extent, duration, and depth that um, droughts of past have had. So they're even a little bit more on the, you know, they're, they're not quite as strong as you see in the in those longer term records, paleo records. Of course, there is one fundamental difference, I think, from what I understand. It's hotter now. Absolutely. So the key thing about the current drought period is that it's warmer. So if you look at some drought metrics, um, there's a new one we've been playing with that um, um, was developed by some um, Spanish researchers because we've really struggled with this idea of the interaction of temperature and precipitation and drought monitoring. We mostly look at precip because it's fairly simple to do, right? You just sort of total it up average it out, look at it at different time periods. But we know that um, the, the water balance and the, out, the, at, the aspects of um, evapotranspiration become important in driving drought stress on plants and water resources. So you gotta put those things together. The best tool we've had in our toolbox has been the Palmer Drought Severity Index, but we also know that it's a little bit clunky when you get out into arid locations and um, you're not totally clear on how soil water moves around and those kinds of things. So this new metric um, the Spanish researchers have come up with is, is the Standardized Precipitation Minus Evapotranspiration Index, so the SPEI. And it's a, it's a pretty simple index in, in the sense that it's using a, um, a pretty straightforward metric to estimate evapotranspiration from temperature data, and then you just total up precipitation data, right? And so there's a little bit of magic there in the sense that- It's a moisture balance. It's a moisture balance, right. And again, we know that moisture balances are way, way, way more complicated than this, but this at least allows us to look at the interaction between temperature and precipitation. When you do that and you start looking at maps of this information, um, this particular index for Arizona and New Mexico, they are off the charts um, in intensity for Arizona and New Mexico for this most recent. 2002 in particular ends up being 
the um, most intense um, drought um, with this SPEI uh, right. value. And, that, and that's the, the T, the temp. It's the temperature part of it. It's, and it's, again, it's, it's trying to get at this evapotranspiration part of it. So it's the E part of it. And it's, so it's saying that it's driving sort of stronger aridity right. with this increased temperature. And it's also got this massive precipitation deficit on it. So if you look at the data for New Mexico, it's, you know, the, the, the metric is on standard deviation units. And so it's, it's scaled to go from positive three to negative three, which are, when you think about it as far as the frequency you'd expect to see that, it's very, very rare to get to those values. And we're right at those values. So three would be like in the 99 point. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The once in a hundred year. Yeah. yeah. The once in a hundred year type event. Um, for these and that's where we are currently. Yeah, and so again, the geography of this drought is we, you know, we got to keep revisiting this because it's in Arizona and New Mexico are not created equal in this drought, right? New Mexico is seeing conditions way, way worse than Arizona. Arizona is not out of the woods, still seeing drought conditions, but we're not anywhere near close to New Mexico, except for southeast Arizona has been sharing in the misery of New Mexico's drought. <laughs> southeast Arizona has been seeing much more like most of New Mexico than the rest of the state. So even in our own state here in Arizona, when we're talking about um, our region, you know, Southeast Arizona is um, is slipping off the table as well. So is that, th- just thinking about, you know, the winter storms, um, is that because the trajectory of the winter storms have been sort of moving up sort of northeast through Arizona and just, and, and, not, and, missing, and missing New Mexico? Yep. Um, that has happened over the last 10 years. We've seen these situations where, um, you know, our winter storm track, when it's not a real strong subtropical jet driven like an El Nino year, and they're just sort of the, the run-of-the-mill winter storms that drop out of the Gulf of Alaska, um, they can, they'll dig through Southern California and they'll sort of lift through Arizona. And what they'll do is that they'll, they'll nail the Mogollon Rim, you know, because the fetch of the moisture is there and the lift is there from the, the mountain ranges. And, um, you know, it's amazing enough. You can even watch it here in Tucson. You can see all the clouds to the north of us, but all it is is windy here. And that's, you know, southeast Arizona is even a little bit farther. You know, a county away is enough to either have precip or not during some of these winter storms. Okay, before moving on, talk a little bit about the monsoon. The other point to be made, I think, about, about the drought conditions is, and we've made this a, a bunch of times, and it's, it's, it's fairly well known, but it's the number one uh, uh, drought conditions are the number one cause of of forest fires in the region. But we haven't yet experienced uh, an epic fire season like we did two years ago, although uh, the, the fire forecast is calling for um, some enhanced risk of, of, of fires going forward. And, and you, Mike, you had mentioned to me before that the antecedent conditions are in fact the best predictor of acres burn in, in, in Arizona. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose we, sh- we should be on the lookout for uh, more fires here in, in, in the Southwest, uh, at least until the monsoon season starts and that brings me to the monsoon well let's just let's just revisit the fire thing because um the conditions are in set for they're set for having you know some pretty big fire seasons and everybody's really concerned about this and, and we just we have seen a couple break out in arizona and they've been sort of low elevation pretty easy to get on and that kind of stuff you got to remember that the um memorial day weekend is coming up this weekend and that that's when the wallow fire started um Human, right? Human caused, right. And so we're way outside of the natural lightning um, caused fire regime at this point, you know, because we're, it's the, 
storm tracks sort of lifting up and we're, it's too early for monsoon storms for the most part. So you get in a season where rec outdoor recreation becomes a, a big risk. And this, this, you know, the, everything is set. We have um, fire weather, uh, red flag warnings across northern Arizona today. Um, very, very normal, typical sort of um, dry cold front sweeping across the region on top of the drought conditions that are across Arizona, New Mexico. So, you know, it's not to say that in a week, uh, two weeks, uh, you and I will be in the next podcast sort of talking about an epic fire. The hope is, is that, you know, we'll, we'll skirt by, we can get through the next five weeks and get some moisture in here and sort of stomp that out. I guess the only thing that's uh, slightly optimistic here is that the, the Mogollon Rim area did experience um, some uh, some better than average precipitation. So they did, but it was a long time ago. It was, you know, it was, you know, it, <laughs> it dries it, out quickly. It dries out quickly here, right? We have a climatological fire season, and um, you know, the wildfire wallow fire burned in an area that didn't do terribly bad that particular winter. Also, in 2011, um, the gradient was very similar to the gradient this this past year. Was that it's almost identical, actually. Part of the Mogollon did really well in. Um, uh, June or it's the winter of, of 2011. It was actually when the whole um, Utah and Colorado got record snowpack from a very weird um, couple of atmospheric rivers. Um, so you know, it's it's not to say that you couldn't have something blow up right there in that particular location. Okay, so most people, I would say, me being one of them, fondly look at the monsoon season as as the the most exciting time of year me too i was already talking with my kids today about how in you know and hopefully in four weeks we'll be looking up at some clouds building up and some lightning in the afternoon so um god i, I always feel at a loss of words when people ask me how the monsoon's gonna be yeah i've been asked a couple <laughs> times myself What's the party line right now? You, so the CPC, the Climate Prediction uh, Center, uh, does their seasonal climate forecasts. Um, uh, and, well, not surprisingly, it's, it's, uh, it's an equal chances, meaning you might as well just flip a coin whether or not you say it's going to be above or below or start early or start you know, average or late. Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing with the Climate Prediction Center forecast was last month, the July, August, September um, forecast for Arizona, New Mexico for the for precipitation actually had a sort of tilting towards a below average um, probability, right? And that panicked me a little bit. And this well, what month, they, what, this month they went point, away. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I think it, it, they are leaning really hard on um, some tools that are sort of notoriously not very good for um, forecasting the monsoon. Right, and they they all they have in their po back pocket at this point is using um, some of the dynamical models, and so and using a bunch of the dynamical models all combined in um, a statistical way, which we call an ensemble. And last month they were sort of suggesting that Arizona was going to go dry, and now this month they're actually suggesting that eastern New Mexico and the Great Plains are going to go dry, and um, they've really diverged across Arizona and New Mexico. So, I. You know, you can look at this a couple different ways, right? I mean, I, I, you can now maybe breathe a sigh of relief that we don't have this below average over us. I'm more of the, of the thinking that I, we just don't really know. Right. I, I don't think we really know um, how things are going to shake out. There, um, it could go a lot of different ways. The hope right now is, is um, climatology, right? right. Is um, that we come in somewhere near average. Well, I'm, I'm still hoping for a... A, a big monsoon, but you actually touched on a point that we said that we would address on our last podcast, and that was m models. 
-hmm. And that was the character of models, particularly in relation to a, a number of statements that have been made, you know, over the years about, well, if you can't, you know, forecast outside of, you know, 10 to 14 days, how the heck are you going to forecast three months in advance or even longer? These, these global climate models that you hear so much about that have projections out to 2100 and, and, and even beyond. And uh, so I, I wanted to touch on that a little bit because I think the, I think there's a couple points. One, uh, and Mike, you know more about this than I do, but one is that they're not the same models. It's not, they, they may have this, some of the similar things beneath the hood of the models, but they're, they're, not, the, they're not running the same models and just analyzing the data um, differently. Right, yeah, and I think that it, it, it's first off, if, um, you know, if you're really interested in it, you can dig in the, in the internet and find out that there are actually um, dozens and dozens of different types of models for different purposes, right? Different institutions, have developed different models, um, different agencies have developed different models, and they're all for different. So there's got all these different makes and models. When we talk about models, and we're talking about um, a weather forecast model for a climate uh, versus a climate forecast model, is that then it's set up by different people for different purposes. The physics um, in the models are going to be the same, right? I mean, they're going to try to get at the same things because they're all trying to get to the same answer. Um, but then the output is often actually slightly different, and the way that we analyze the data coming out of them becomes different. So I think that um, you know a couple things is that at the 10 to 14 day weather forecasting model, which so you're you're looking at um, you're trying to use uh, model physics and model grid resolutions to get at weather events that are occurring over that period of time have gotten amazingly better in just the last five years. Computational power better physics, um, and just sort of better ways of sort of teasing out information. So that, that in itself is changing overnight. What we're talking about today, when we're talking about seasonal forecasts, is actually a little bit of a different beast. And the whole idea of developing a seasonal forecast, and the Climate Prediction Center is our official, um, our, our official effort here in the United States, is actually an expert system. And so part of it is actually a climate forecast system model. It's what they call it, the climate forecast system version two. And it's trying to um, look at climate timescales, you know, from a month to 13 months and the elements of the climate system that will impact weather and how those two things will sort of come together to give you a feel for large-scale pattern changes or, or shifts in the mean and those kinds of things over these, that particular time scale. But some of those things that are in that climate system forecast model is not necessarily in or treated the same in the weather forecast models. Like, for instance, at least my understanding is for the seasonal climate forecasting, you, you sort of have to understand the evolution of the ocean temperatures in the tropical Pacific Ocean, like the ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, um, because that controls a lot of our weather weather patterns around the globe, on on scales that that changes happen at longer scales than, than ten to fourteen days. So That's right. a weather yeah. forecast model isn't necessarily concerned with getting those sea surface temperatures right. That's right. So you know, in a weather forecast model, there is interest in getting land surface properties and ocean atmosphere coupling um, correct because you that'll help improve model. Um, precision and accuracy at, at weather time scales, but at climate time scales that becomes even way more important. And in, like you said, these oscillations, um, feedbacks between soil moisture 
and the atmosphere actually make huge differences at the seasonal time scale. You can make really good temperature predictions, whether or not you've got in an arid area, if there's a lot of soil moisture, that's actually gonna um, feed back and create a cooler um, climate. And then if it's drier, that's gonna have an aspect. And as you said too, you've got actually got to get evolution of sea surface temperature pattern forcings correct too. So like in a seasonal forecast mode, you've got to get um, the evolution of ENSO, El Nino or La Nina events correct to then feed back into the larger scale um, circulation patterns. Right, okay, so we gotta wrap up, but I think the, the point, one of the points is, is that they're, they're not, the, the questions that you ask and the ways you answer those questions are different uh, depending on the, the time scale, weather versus, versus, versus seasonal climate. Yeah, and what you do with the information that comes out of it is that, you know, with the weather forecast, you're trying to find high impact weather events. There's like particular things that come out of the model. Timing is very critical. Um, the particular amounts of precipitation, um, you know, sort of very dialed in deterministic things. Seasonal forecasts at climate, um, you don't have that luxury and you're looking more at sort of statistical properties of model output, shifts in means, um, probabilities, those kinds of things. Okay, we could probably spend a lot more time. It is. And, and again, you know, it's, you could really, one of the things we could do in the future podcast is get a climate modeler in here and, and really pick their brain up. Yeah, we should, do, we, that, that's a good idea. Um, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to end it here. And, and I do want to say though, that we are doing, Clemus is doing, and Southwest Climate Change Network is hosting a, a monsoon briefing on June 20th at uh, 11 o'clock. And uh, you'll be able to find details on our website, uh, which is uh, www.clemus.arizona.edu and it probably will also be on the Southwest Climate Change Network site uh, www.southwestclimatechange.org uh, you'll be able to find details on the monsoon briefing as well as an archive of this and other podcasts we've done in the past so uh, thanks for tuning in and we'll come back uh, uh, in a month or so and talk more weather and climate in the Southwest <laughs>